This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of murder, medical malpractice, mental health conditions, and torture that may be upsetting. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. Once you cross a line, it's difficult to turn back. It can become an addiction, the rush of doing something illegal, unethical, or deadly. And it can become impossible to stop. Dr. Marcel Petiot crossed that line over and over, from petty theft to financial crimes, to drug dealing, to murder, Petiot broke nearly every law he could. He loved the rush of getting one over on someone, of finding what he could steal from them and taking whatever he could their money, their possessions, and eventually, their lives. The doctor couldn't stop himself. Instead, he doubled down. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath it boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting, I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. Dr. Kipper here to help Alistair by providing some medical insight into our final episode of that cut-up of a doctor, Marcel Petio. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. This is our second episode on Marcel Petiot, a French doctor who killed dozens of people during his medical career, beginning in the 1920s and extending through the Second World War. Last week, we covered Dr. Petiot's volatile early life, how he became a doctor and left a trail of crime and mysterious deaths in his wake. This week, we'll learn how, during World War II, 
Petiot killed dozens in a secret murder chamber. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. As 1942 dawned, the entire world was at war. The United States had entered the fray after the attack on Pearl Harbor in December 1941. The United Kingdom was hanging on for dear life after fending off air attacks from Germany in the Battle of Britain. In France, the war had already taken a massive toll. The country had been successfully invaded by German forces and was now being run by a collaborationist government. Nazi soldiers and Gestapo officers patrolled its capital city, Paris. Recognizing the threat of the Nazi regime, many Parisians fled their city, heading to areas in southern France that were not yet under German control. The population in Paris dropped from 3 million to barely 800,000. Those who remained faced a new and terrifying reality, with persecution and death lurking behind every corner. Because Nazi soldiers weren't the only murderous predators walking the streets of Paris. One of their neighbors and countrymen was a vicious serial killer. Dr. Marcel Petiot had already lived a dramatic life by the time the war began. He'd been injured in the trenches of the First World War and spent time in and out of mental hospitals and been arrested multiple times for theft and burglary. Later, Petiot had eventually straightened his life out and become a popular doctor, local politician, and state medical officer, first in a tiny village in eastern France, then in the big city of Paris. But his kleptomania never went away and Petio still engaged in constant petty theft and embezzlement. In the midst of it all, he'd been connected to several mysterious disappearances and murders, including the disappearance of his mistress and the murder of one patient's wife. But Petio had managed to avoid the crosshairs of the police. He remained free to practice medicine. In 1942, 45-year-old Dr. Peccio continued to operate out of his main clinic as he had before the war, but now his practice had a new focus – selling drugs to addicts. Peccio ran a so-called detoxification program to help addicts overcome their dependency by providing them with increasingly smaller doses of their narcotic of choice. Both a rapid withdrawal and the gradual tapering off of a controlled substance can be effective and safe, but only when managed and outlined by trained, competent professionals. Without close supervision and the treatment of withdrawal symptoms, the sudden removal of a drug can be incredibly uncomfortable and dangerous for an addict. And this is because of how controlled substances work. Addictive drugs like heroin, morphine, tranquilizers, and prescription pills, for example, create sedating, anesthetizing, or stimulating effects that blunt or charge our nervous system reactions. Prolonged use of these substances creates a physical dependency, and the body soon develops a tolerance, thus needing more and more of a given drug over time to get the same effect. When drugs like this are acutely withdrawn, the nervous system gets upset and responds by releasing agitating chemicals like epinephrine, which makes the addict uncomfortable. 
The body here is basically acting like a bratty child, chemically letting the addict know that it needs more of the drug. This manifests as some combination of severe anxiety, insomnia, and agitation. It can even create more physical reactions like muscle aches, diarrhea, sweats, nausea, vomiting, and seizures. The good news is that the discomfort goes away in about one to two weeks with proper medical guidance, which provides safe treatment that alleviates these withdrawal symptoms. Because of this ugly sympathetic nervous system reaction, gradually weaning off a drug is better tolerated by the body. In this way, what Petio is claiming does make medical sense. The biggest risk for both options is the failure to concomitantly treat any underlying mental health issues like anxiety, depression, bipolar disorders, and some psychotic disorders. Without addressing these pre-existing factors, the addict will continue to experience the same symptoms when significantly stressed and will likely return to their chosen illicit substance for relief. The relapse rate for substance abuse is over 90%, and this statistic hasn't changed for over a century. Petio provided his patients and customers whatever drug they wanted or needed, from morphine to heroin to peyote. The addicts saw Dr. Petio as a sympathetic figure, one of the only members of the medical establishment willing to get them the help they needed. In reality, Petio was just doing what he'd always done, breaking the rules to make as much money as he could. And it wasn't long before police caught wind of this new narcotics supplier. In the spring of 1942, the Paris police began a crackdown on drug users. Two of the drug users they arrested were Jean-Marc Van Bever, a delivery man, and Jeanette Gaulle, his girlfriend. Each of them had multiple prescriptions for heroin from the past three weeks, all written by the same doctor, Marcel Petiot. The police apprehended Petiot and indicted him on narcotics charges, refusing to believe the doctor's claims that he was trying to help his patients. Sealing the deal, Van Bever was prepared to testify that Petiot didn't care whether he was an addict and was selling drugs for the money. The charges were serious. If found guilty, Petiot could, at the very least, lose his medical license. Overprescribing dangerous drugs or doing so for profit is a serious offense and absolutely a reason to strip someone of their medical license. If the goal truly is to wean someone off a harmful substance, then there's no medical misconduct in this approach. However, for this technique to be legitimate and legal, it needs to be well documented and agreements between the doctor and patient need to be well delineated. There should also be specialists involved in this process or people familiar with these drugs in relation to how their withdrawals play out. It's also important to have mental health professionals in the mix, like psychologists, in order to ensure abstinence from drug use and offer alternative self-soothing methods. If a doctor or any professional involved in this treatment continues to support someone's ongoing dependency for any reason, it's considered medical malpractice. Overprescribing can be a problem because doctors can generate a lot of money by writing prescriptions. It can even happen because, unfortunately, there are doctors out there who aren't aware of the long-term issues that come from prolonged drug use. 
This unethical and reckless overprescribing has a long history in the medical community, and luckily, it's become much easier to regulate. This is attributed to greater supervision over pharmacies and physician prescribers, along with databases that track what drugs are prescribed, how often, the exact doses, and who's writing the prescriptions. Considering the large number of prescriptions Petio filled for the couple in such a short span of time, he should have been prevented from practicing medicine then and there. Marcel Petio's medical career was hanging by a thread. Then, two months before the trial was set to commence, Jean-Marc Van Bevere suddenly disappeared. Petiot argued in court that Van Bevere had fled the city rather than face trial, which therefore proved his own guilt and Petiot's innocence. And once again, the authorities chose to place their trust in the good doctor and let him off the hook with a small fine. Jeanette Goal, on the other hand, served three months in prison. Her drug use worsened and she died from tetanus months after release. Meanwhile, Petio returned to his other project, building a new clinic. With Nazis patrolling the streets and Parisians fleeing south, Marcel Petio had decided it was the perfect time to expand his medical practice. Taking advantage of the suddenly favorable real estate market, Petio had bought a townhouse in the city's coveted 16th arrondissement for nearly half a million francs. The townhouse was in rough shape, so Petio undertook an extensive renovation. He told his wife that the house would be a new mental health clinic, but no clinic was ever opened. Instead, it remained uninhabited. The truth was, Petio had other aspirations for the townhouse. Most importantly, he wanted to make sure that whatever he did inside remained secret. So he constructed high walls around the property to block out any prying eyes. Meanwhile, Petio expanded his medical operations. In ways that are still unclear, Petio reportedly became involved in the underground French resistance against the Nazis. Petio allegedly used his medical bona fides to supply false records to help keep Frenchmen from being conscripted into the German armed forces. He also said that he treated the wounds of those who were sent to the front lines and passed information he heard from them about German troop movements to the resistance and the Allied powers. Petio claimed that he was driven to action by patriotism and a desire to help defeat the occupying Nazi forces. But even if that was his initial motivation, it was quickly subsumed by another impulse, a desire to steal and kill. It was time for his new clinic to open for business. Coming up, New patients enter Dr. Peccio's new house, never to be seen again. You discover their practices, seek their advice, and let yourself become more vulnerable than ever before. They have the ability to heal what the doctors can't, or so they say. Hi listeners, it's Vanessa from the podcast series Cults. 
Be sure to check out our four-part special on Miracle Healers airing right now. Meet figures from around the world who claimed powers and pushed remedies, but harbored more sinister intentions. You don't want to miss it. And if you're looking for more episodes on the most radical and deadly groups in history, tune in to Cults every Tuesday. From Jim Jones and the People's Temple, to Charles Manson and the Manson family, to Keith Raniere and Nexium, you'll uncover the unscrupulous methods used to turn bright-eyed recruits into die-hard believers. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Cults, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In Nazi-occupied Paris, 45-year-old Dr. Marcel Petiot saw an opportunity. Through his alleged connections with the French resistance, Petiot became aware of the numerous people who were still trying to flee Paris. Jewish people, soldiers, criminals. In 1942, Petiot even claimed to have helped out in some escape attempts, aiding the resistance in acquiring false identity papers that could be used to escape into Spain. But Petiot had no real interest in helping anyone escape France. He was purely in it for the money. People running for their lives were willing to pay a small fortune for safe passage out of France. As the cost of escape increased, so did Petiot's greed. He wanted that money all to himself. So, it seems Dr. Petiot struck out on his own and started a new underground escape network. Using the pseudonym Dr. Eugène, Petiot told his resistance associates that he could get anyone to a safe country for a price of 25,000 francs per person. It wasn't long before he found a group of individuals who were among his earliest clients. In the summer of 1942, Petiot became acquainted with the German-Jewish Canella family, who had left Germany because of rising anti-Semitism in 1933 and were now looking to escape France for the same reason. From July 16th to the 17th, 1942, the Paris police arrested nearly 13,000 Jewish citizens, dragging them from their homes and putting them on buses bound for concentration camps. The Canellas managed to avoid arrest, but knew they had to get out of France as quickly as possible. Desperate, the Canellas reached out to Dr. Eugène, who told them he could get them out of Paris the very next day and send them on the way to Argentina. On July 17th, Dr. Petiot visited the Canellas at their apartment. He instructed them to pack all of their most valuable possessions in their luggage. Bizarrely, the doctor also demanded that they give him their furniture as part of the deal. The Canellas, desperate, likely agreed without argument and spent the rest of the day packing. 
The next night, Petio led Mr. Canella through the dark Paris streets to his empty house in the 16th arrondissement. Mr. Canella's wife and seven-year-old son followed on July 19th. Petio claimed the house was a checkpoint and safe house where they'd receive their false papers before being passed on to his associates who would get them safely to Argentina. Luggage in hand, the Canellas followed Dr. Petio through the doorway and into his townhouse. Petio closed the door behind them and the Canellas were never seen alive again. Based on findings uncovered by the authorities when they searched Peccio's house in 1944, the doctor likely led the family through the main residence and across a small courtyard. Towering walls around the courtyard prevented anyone from seeing in or out. It's possible that the Canellas followed the doctor to a smaller building at the back of the property. Originally built for stables and servants' quarters, it had been fashioned into something resembling a makeshift doctor's office. Once Peccio had brought the Canellas inside, he announced that the journey to Argentina required vaccinations and inoculations. Trusting the doctor, each of the Canellas allowed Peccio to inject them. But it wasn't a vaccine. It was almost certainly a powerful sedative. One they would never wake up from. Once the Canellas were sedated, Petio would have dragged their unconscious bodies one by one through a small passageway into a strange triangular chamber. Illuminated by a single bare light bulb, Petio propped up his victim and tied them up to eight iron rings fixed into the wall. After setting everything up, Petio left the room. He peered through a spyglass he'd installed through the wall, perfectly framed on the face of his unconscious prisoner. Then, he allegedly pumped gaseous hydrogen cyanide into the triangular room and watched them die. Hydrogen cyanide is a colorless liquid or gas that was discovered in the 18th century. It's used in a variety of chemical processes, including fumigation. Its gaseous form was first used as a chemical weapon during World War I. Though many people cannot detect its smell, some describe it as having a bitter, stale, almond-like odor. The effects of this chemical compound on human beings are proportionate to the amount of exposure. If small amounts are inhaled, someone can experience respiratory tract or eye irritation, headaches, fatigue, nausea, and vomiting. Larger doses generally result in irregular heart rhythms, extreme difficulty breathing, seizures, loss of consciousness, and a rapid death. Hydrogen cyanide stops cells from using and processing oxygen and virtually affects all of the body's vital organs. This is especially detrimental to the heart, brain, blood vessels, and lungs, all of which require high concentrations of oxygen to function. If these structures fail, death will occur in a matter of minutes. In the case here, Petio's victims also had sedatives in their systems when they were killed. Because this family of drugs relaxes your central nervous system, it slows heart rate and respiration. 
In this way, it's likely the combination of sedatives and hydrogen cyanide gas hastened oxygen deprivation in the victims' bodies, causing them to die a bit quicker. Because they were unconscious, they likely didn't suffer much when they were gassed. It's similar to how the Nazis systematically killed during this same time in history, although they didn't use sedation. Petiot's method, although monstrous, was much more humane in comparison. After each of the three Canellas was dead, Petiot moved on to his favorite activity, theft. And it seems he attempted to steal everything they had. Years later, it was estimated that Petiot collected over 200 million francs from his many victims. And though he robbed all of his victims, he didn't kill them all with gaseous hydrogen cyanide. It's suspected that Dr. Peccio experimented in the triangular chamber in ways that still aren't known today. But he didn't stop at theft and macabre experimentation. Peccio's cover-ups were even more elaborate than the murders themselves. To cover his tracks, he often forged letters to the family or friends of the attempted escapees, posing as his victims and assuring them that they'd reach safety in Argentina. Then, there were the bodies. To take care of those, Peccio relied on his medical training, his scalpel, and a generous amount of quicklime. Quicklime is a name for the chemical calcium oxide, which at various times throughout history has been used for its ability to stop the spread of bacterial disease from dead bodies and hide their smell. When quicklime is dumped onto a body, it soaks up moisture from the corpse and the surrounding environment, like the air and ground. When the quicklime, or calcium oxide, mixes with water, calcium hydroxide is formed. This is also known as slaked lime, and its creation causes an exothermic release of heat. When left on a corpse, its heat kills much of the bacteria that causes putrefaction, or the process of decay. So killing the bacteria also eliminates the odor. Despite burning and ruining the integrity of the skin, the chemical compound tends to preserve the body as a whole by drying it out, basically mummifying it. I suspect Petio was particularly fond of how quicklime led to the dehydration of his dead victim's tissues. It would have helped him break the bodies apart by making them brittle and render them easier to dispose of. But it definitely would have helped him hide the smell, too. With the bodies split into smaller pieces and easier to carry, Petio could now easily and secretly dispose of the remains anywhere in the city. In August of 1942, a mysterious bag was found floating in the Seine. When Parisians fished the bag out of the water, they discovered a horrific sight. The butchered corpses of a young boy and a middle-aged woman. And that was just the beginning. Throughout the rest of that year and the next, human remains were discovered all around the city mostly pulled from the Seine, or sometimes left in packages in alleyways. The police never recovered a full body. Instead, they found seemingly random collections of body parts, arms, ears, scalps, and genitals. 
A chief medical examiner in Paris took a closer look at the body parts recovered and discovered that they were identifiable trademarks to the mutilation of each body. Each scalp had been shaved with the eyebrows removed. Each hand had its fingerprints filed away or burned off with acid. There was no doubt about it. The man who killed these people and scattered their remains around the city knew his way around a human body. And he also knew how to use a scalpel with the skill of a professional. What most concerned the medical examiner were small marks left in the thighs of the bodies. Places where the scalpel was stuck into the leg as if in a pincushion. Using the thigh that way was common practice for someone with medical training at the time. It would be relatively easy to tell the bodies were handled by someone with medical training, starting with the scalpel marks in the thigh. Using the thigh as a pincushion is a common technique practiced by medical professionals who are examining or dissecting cadavers. When they need another instrument or the use of their hands for something else, rather than place the scalpel down, they'll conveniently use the thigh's flesh to hold it. This is something that's often taught to coroners in their physician residency programs. The idea behind this is always knowing where the scalpel is and avoiding accidental cuts by the uncovered blade. It's a small detail, but something that would be quickly noticed by a doctor examining a corpse with these kinds of puncture marks. The fact that individual body parts of the victims were removed and kept intact is also something that implies the perpetrator had medical training. And that's because this kind of cutting and body dismemberment requires precision and skill. Someone would have to know where and how to cut into these areas in order to neatly accomplish this sort of mutilation. Petiot's medical proficiencies were very useful when it came to covering his tracks, as his mismatched collections of unidentifiable body parts created confusion. Ironically, though, these skills also tipped the police off to the fact that he was a doctor. The medical examiner was horrified by the realization that the predator haunting his city was most likely a doctor, maybe even one he personally knew. The examiner seriously considered the possibility that one of his assistant examiners might have been the murderer. While he eventually ruled that out, the disturbing reality remained. There was a doctor somewhere in Paris who was also a serial killer. But no one knew it was Marcel Petiot. Dr. Petiot's efforts to hide the murderous truth of his escape network were enormously effective. By 1943, Marcel Petiot, also known as Dr. Eugène, had a good reputation in underground Paris. Desperate people from all over the city came to him, seeking a reliable way to secretly escape France. They believed the doctor was their ticket out of the country, and there was no reason to suspect that there was anything nefarious going on. More and more people entered Dr. Petiot's house in the 16th arrondissement and were never seen again. As more people disappeared, the police and escapees weren't the only ones searching for Marcel Petiot. The Gestapo, too, began an investigation into the mysterious Dr. Eugène. 
not because they believed he was a killer, but because they thought he was helping Jewish people escape. In the spring of 1943, the Gestapo decided to get aggressive. They blackmailed a French Jewish man named Yvonne Dreyfus and forced him to infiltrate the resistance network and retain Dr. Eugène's services. Dreyfus made contact with Dr. Eugène, started the escape process, and disappeared. Undeterred, the Gestapo tried again. They sent more informants into the resistance, eventually uncovering two men who referred escapees to Dr. Eugène. The Gestapo tortured the men until they revealed the doctor's address. It was one of the properties of Marcel Petiot. In May of 1943, the Gestapo marched into Marcel Petiot's home and arrested him. The Paris police, meanwhile, working completely separately from the Gestapo, weren't making any progress in their investigation of the dead bodies left around the city. Their trail had suddenly gone cold. Coming up, the Paris police continue investigating the serial killings, while Marcel Petiot fights to keep the truth of his crimes hidden. Now, back to the story. As the new year 1944 began, the Second World War continued to ravage Europe and Nazis still controlled France. In Paris, the city's police continued to search for answers. They still had no suspects for the killer who'd left mutilated corpses in the Seine and all around the city. But the trail had gone cold. The last body was uncovered in the spring of 1943 and there were no further clues because their killer was already in prison. 46-year-old Marcel Petiot sat in a dark cell in Fresnes prison just south of the city. The Gestapo believed him to be the man codenamed Dr. Eugène who helped Jewish people escape France. For months, Petiot refused to confess or name any other resistance members. The Gestapo also searched his home and interrogated his wife, searching for evidence of his escape network, but finding none. In a stroke of luck for Peccio, the Gestapo didn't find out about his empty house in the 16th arrondissement. The truth about Dr. Eugène's real activities remained secret. After eight months in prison, the Gestapo gave up on getting information from Peccio and his two associates and release them. For the umpteenth time, Petio walked away from serious trouble and remained a free man. Petio may have been tempted to take his crimes even further, feeling invincible. Over his life, it seemed as though everyone around him had tried to lock him up. The military had tried to commit him in an asylum. The police had arrested him regularly. The Gestapo had thrown him in prison. None of them could take Marcel Petiot down. Not yet. On March 6, 1944, thick black smoke began belching out of the chimney at Petiot's empty house in Paris. The smoke wafted into adjacent houses, annoying neighbors with its unpleasant smell similar to burning rubber. 
five days later, the smoke hadn't abated, so the neighbors called the police to complain. When the police arrived, no one answered the door. After talking to a neighbor, they found out that the owner was Marcel Petiot. They gave the doctor a call and Petiot promised to meet them there and warned them not to touch anything. When Petiot failed to show up, the police decided to force their way in. The leader of the fire brigade climbed a ladder to a second floor balcony, smashed the window and crawled into the townhouse. The firemen walked through the dark, empty house, trying to locate the source of the black smoke. They followed the sickening smell of the smoke to a room in the basement sealed with an iron door. When the firemen opened the door, the first thing they saw was a decomposing human hand hanging out of a burning stove. The firemen walked farther into the basement and discovered even greater horrors. Human skulls, bones, and piles of rotting body parts were strewn across the floor. The air was thick with smoke and the smell of burning flesh and quicklime. Nauseated and terrified, the firemen left the basement as fast as they could. They alerted the police outside, who stormed the house and began searching the entire property. As the search began, Marcel Petiot finally appeared at the scene. Claiming he was the homeowner's brother, Petiot brazenly approached the police on his bicycle and spun a tale for them. In hushed tones, Petiot told them that he was a leader of a resistance group and that the bodies found inside belonged to Nazis and French traitors. Petiot called upon their patriotic duty to help him. Sympathetic to the resistance and no friend of Nazis, the policeman took Petiot at his word. So they told him to flee. And Petiot did. Once again, the doctor slipped away. But Petio knew the jig was up. His career as a doctor was over, and it was time to go on the run. He didn't return home. Instead, he went to his old resistance associates, who were happy to hide him after he told them the Gestapo was once again after him. Meanwhile, the police began their investigation into the pile of bodies they recovered from the house. The medical examiner immediately noticed the similarities between the bodies discovered in the house and the corpses fished out of the Seine a year earlier. The bodies bore the same scalpel marks and telltale signs of a medical professional. But there was another element to the bodies from the house. While they were dissected with the precision of a doctor, they were also crudely broken apart. In one instance, the killer had cut out the arm and shoulder of one body in a way that more closely resembled cutting a chicken than dealing with a human corpse. The medical examiner came to the conclusion that while the killer may have started dismembering the corpses in order to destroy or hide them easier, he had begun to enjoy it. 
Marcel Petio knew how to thoroughly dissect a body due to his medical training, albeit overly expedited, but he absolutely went above and beyond. In reference to the crude dismemberment you just referred to, Alistair, maybe he had an academic interest in seeing what trauma to the human form looked like. Perhaps there was some morbid curiosity that drove him to experiment with unconventional methods of removing appendages. It's also conceivable that he wanted to humiliate his victims in some way or feel a sense of control and power over their bodies. These mutilations could have also been the result of misplaced anger, giving him some kind of catharsis. Although we'll never understand the true reasoning behind this strange approach to deconstructing a corpse, it's safe to assume that he knew what he was doing. The extent to which Petio disfigured the bodies shows that, at a certain point, he took sadistic enjoyment from it. The sadism and brutality of Petio's crimes hit the Paris newspapers and soon became the biggest story in the city. Sensationalized articles ran rampant, reporting increasingly outlandish tales of what Marcel Petio might have done to his victims. Months passed as the police continued their search, but the murderous doctor was nowhere to be found. On June 6, the Allied powers stormed the beaches of Normandy and began taking back France from the Germans. By August, the Allied forces had marched into Paris and began fighting to liberate the city. As war reached Paris, Marcel Petiot came out of hiding. Under the name Henri Valérie, Petiot joined the French forces of the interior to fight the remaining German forces. By the end of August, Paris was liberated and the Nazis were fleeing the country. Captain Henri Valérie continued fighting with the French forces of the interior, now working to hunt down and round up collaborators who remained in the city. The French police were still searching for Marcel Petiot, but the trail had gone cold. The detectives were starting to think that Petiot had taken advantage of the upheaval and fled the country. Then, nearly eight months after the discovery of Petiot's house of death, the investigators finally caught a new lead. In September, a Paris newspaper published the supposed deposition of a man who claimed to have known Petio personally. The deposition alleged that the doctor had actually been working for the Nazis, targeting French resistance fighters. Petio read the newspaper and was incensed. It was one thing to be called a sadistic serial killer. It was far worse to be called a Nazi collaborator. So Petio sent his own letter to the newspaper, blasting the deposition as nothing but lies. That was all the investigators needed. Now they knew Petio was still in Paris. Policemen were put on high alert. The manhunt intensified. On October 31, 1944, Marcel Petiot walked into a metro station in Paris. Three military officers approached him and asked him for the time. When Petiot lifted his hand to check his watch, an officer locked handcuffs around his wrist while another officer violently kicked him to the ground. 
the killer who'd hunted Paris for years was finally in custody. Charged with 135 crimes in relation to the 27 murder victims that authorities were able to identify, Petiot responded with his typical lies and overconfidence. He continued to claim that he only killed Germans and Nazi collaborators and did so for the sake of his country and the resistance. On March 18, 1946, the authorities brought Petiot to trial. There, with an audience of a judge and jury, Petiot delighted in putting on a show. Just like in his politician days, his charisma and persuasiveness won over many in the audience who began to believe his resistance claims. The defense team also placed a number of Dr. Peccio's past patients on the stand. They couldn't believe that the man they knew was capable of such evil. However, despite glowing praise from a number of patients, there was simply nothing that proved anything Peccio said in his own defense. There was no record of his activities among official resistance documents and rosters. The physical evidence of Peccio's crimes, on the other hand, was overwhelming. After a lifetime of narrowly avoiding consequences, Marcel Peccio finally found himself facing something he couldn't escape. When the trial came to a close, the judges and jury deliberated for only three hours, 80 seconds per charge. They found Peccio guilty of 126 of the 135 crimes and sentenced him to death. As Petio was led out of the courtroom after the verdict, he turned back and yelled to the audience, I must be avenged. Yet, 49-year-old Marcel Petio was strangely upbeat after his death sentence was handed down. He spent his last weeks happily reading poetry in his prison cell and remained calm as he walked to the guillotine on the morning of May 25th 1946. According to witnesses, Petio was smiling as the blade fell. From childhood, Marcel Petio preyed on people's trust, his parents, his teachers, his commanding officers, to steal everything he could. Through his time in mental hospitals, he learned firsthand the power that a doctor wielded and sought it for himself. Marcel Petio was on a destructive path from the very beginning. He clearly had narcissistic leanings and seemed to always be a violent manipulator. His impulsive and obsessive tendencies were on a blatant display from an early age, which we saw manifested in his kleptomania and misconduct in school. His behaviors demonstrated a clear imbalance in his serotonergic and dopaminergic brain circuitry, which likely contributed to his eventual relationship with murder, just like his natural dopamine deficiency would have addicted him to the rush of theft, it must have also led to his severe impulse to kill. 
Over time, the dopamine surge he got from killing probably became insatiable, which could explain how his methods of killing seemed to progressively evolve. Like a true addict, he steadily needed to intensify his criminal acts. His serotonin imbalance then perhaps contributed to his obsessiveness with murder and facilitated his meticulous proficiency to cover his tracks. To me, Marcel Petio was a dangerous cocktail of personality disturbances mixed with an imbalanced neurochemistry. He's a cautionary tale of how red behavioral flags need to be addressed, especially when it comes to powerful professions like those in medicine. It goes to show once again that not everyone should be allowed to become a doctor. Marcel Petiot never offered an explanation for his crimes. His deeper motivations remain unknown. But the mark Peccio made on Paris lasted long after his execution. He's remembered as Dr. Satan, one of the most prolific serial killers in modern French history. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders. And thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you, Alistair. For more information on Marcel Peccio, among the many sources we used, we found The Unspeakable Crimes of Dr. Peccio by Thomas Mader and Death in the City of Light by David King, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite Spotify originals from Parcast, like Medical Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Murders on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, Kristen Acevedo, Jonathan Cohen, Alexandra Trikvedotir, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Ryan Lee, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and Lauren DeLille, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden.